Yesterday I was talking with uh, a friend, somebody who's been coming to the monastery for many years, a um, long-term supporter and uh, committed Buddhist, and he was telling me how he spent Christmas Day um, with considerable enthusiasm. He he had, um, earlier in the month, he had been thinking about it, the children were all grown up, they're adults now, and and he wondered how he would spend the day and he decided that he wanted to uh, go down to the local church and, and join the homeless people and uh, handing out food and presents on Christmas Day because, as I'm sure you're aware, there's a lot of people on Christmas Day not having a good time. And uh, when he was scanning what was important in his life, and this, this is what came up as a... As a priority, and uh, I think, I think maybe it surprised him a little bit, but he stuck with it, and it turned out to be a great day. He really enjoyed it tremendously, and so I was thinking about this, and also thinking tonight, uh, New Year's Eve, and a good time to perhaps look at what we consider to be the priority in our lives. You know, how do we how do we prioritize? How do we find out what's really uh, important, and then give ourselves to that. Because, as we all know, we do have um, limited, a limited lifespan, and we have limited energy, we have limited understanding, and it obviously matters to us how we spend the life and the energy that we have. And um, and yet, when we stop and start to think about it, what really matters? What's important? How do we arrive at that? How do we how do we feel confident that we're onto the right thing? You know, I find so many people that I speak to, they over the years regularly, people coming and talking about their practice. One of the number one hindrances and difficulties is doubts. It's, um, you know, being greedy is one thing, you know, eating too much ice cream, yeah, well, we can sort of handle that, we can figure out what to do with that, and getting angry, well, we know we shouldn't, and we can work on it, and so But when it comes to doubts, over and over again, people feel or find that they're tripped up by doubts, and and certainly considering if we want to know for ourselves, not, not what somebody else says, but we want to know for ourselves what really matters, what's important in my life, what do I want to do with my life, how do I want to spend my time, my energy, that um, if we're always tripped up by doubts, then that's, well, that's clearly really unfortunate. And so I know uh, in my own case, when uh, as a young monk, 
I uh, was plagued by lots of doubts, and one of the reasons I went to live with Ajahn Chah, actually, because he was somebody who talked a lot about doubts. He, he was encouraging us not to make an enemy out of doubt. And he, he didn't see doubt as an obstruction, but doubt was actually something, if you, you get a proper handle on it, then doubt can be a source of great wisdom. But the teacher I was living with at the time, his perspective on it was, you've just got to cut through it. And over and over again, this teacher would always emphasize, you've just got to cut through the doubt. Don't give it any attention, just, just break through it. And, and well, possibly that, uh, that maybe was what worked for him at that stage of practice. But it took me a very long time to realize that just trying to push doubt aside and overcome doubt and get rid of doubt didn't really work. And what did work, what was helpful, was to get interested in it, interested in the reality of doubt. And if you read the scriptures and you see what the Buddha had to say about the, the uh, different obstructions we come across in practice, it is true. Sometimes he would talk about, yeah, there's certain tendencies of mind, conditions that come up, the right thing to do is just cut through them, just, just don't give them any attention, that's the right thing to do. But if something keeps coming back over and over again and tripping you up, then the right thing to do is to actually attend to it, to turn and look at it. And so if, if we find that when these questions come up, what should I be doing now? And, and all we do is come across doubt, you want to push past that. Regularly people will, say, will come and say, should I be doing more formal practice or should I be contented with daily life practice? It was a good question. Yeah. Should I be doing more formal practice? Yeah, good question. Or should I, you know, should I stop smoking weed completely, or just an occasional spliff? Is that all right? Or you know, or, you know, occasional glass of wine at this time of year, or a bit of cider here or there? Is is that okay? Or should I really give up? You know, like the fifth precept. What does it really mean? You know, and. Well, this relationship that I'm in, you know, should I just keep hacking away at this relationship? You know, we've been together for years, or, or should I be done with it and move on? And, well, these are, yeah, these are real questions. And if every time these real questions emerge and then we're confronted with doubt, we try and push past the doubt, well, well we can spend our whole life doing that. So... In addressing the question of what really matters, how do I find out how I want to be spending my time in life and really have confidence in that, and then I would recommend getting interested in it. Don't make an enemy out of it. Like thinking itself. The reality is that if you think a lot, you'll doubt a lot. And... The fact that we all doubt, you, know, you don't need to feel guilty about it. You know, we're supposed to be doubting. I mean, what, look at the education that we had. Look at the way we were brought up. We were taught to doubt everything. You know, we were taught to question everything. The scientific model of education is to, yeah, question. Look at it. Well, that's all right up to a point. In terms of developing remedies to illnesses, it's, it's good to be looking at alternatives and, and doing research and so on. But when it becomes compulsive, then is it really serving our well-being? And so that's something to look at, that 
the questioning itself, what we call doubting, the questioning itself, doesn't have to be a problem. We don't have to say that it's wrong to be questioning. If we shouldn't be doubting, we wouldn't be doubting. There are causes for our doubt. So let's not make an enemy out of it. Let's get interested in it. And even um, even make friends with it. Yeah. Like when you ask an important question and you really want an answer and then what you get is doubt, instead of feeling guilty and resentful and embarrassed because you're doubting again, you want to just try saying, welcome. Well, just try, even if you don't mean it. It's like when you, you know, like... If you've got neighbours that you don't necessarily like and it's, it's New Year's Eve and, and so, <laughs> so you go and give them some presents and you shake hands with them. Well, it's not that you necessarily suddenly like them, but you're making the opportunity for something to change, right? And so the way we meet, the way we meet doubt, the way we meet the obstructions and difficulties that we come across makes a difference. And so I would suggest uh, experimenting with that. And also with, um, with thinking in general. We, we really, we're conditioned, we're programmed, we're trained to think a lot. We think thinking is great. We worship thinking, we adore thinking. And yet the reality is that we suffer because we can't stop thinking. Well, we can stop thinking. Thinking is noise, isn't it? It's words. And so if instead of just fighting thinking and trying to stop thinking, if we experiment with thinking, listen to thinking. Think an intentional thought. And s- slow it down. I am... What's next? Going... To think. Now, seriously, between each word, there's space, right? And if we just experiment with that, just just get a feeling for that, and get interested in that, and and see that we're not victims. We're not actually victims to our conditioning. So, looking at the question of how do we find that which really matters to us and give ourselves to it. We can investigate thinking itself, investigate the things that we feel obstructed. Why can't we just ask a straight question and get a straight answer? Well, instead of fighting the uncertainty, investigate the uncertainty. What is it? What's... And then the thinking also, we can like trace the thinking back. What about this? What about that? We think one thought, then we can think the opposite thought and... You know, should I do this? Should I do that? Uh, instead of staying up in our heads and and being intimidated by the drama, come back into the body and feel. Feel what's behind that. What's behind? What's behind all this drama? Uh, ask, ask, ask the body. Investigate. Ask the body, what's behind all this noise? And maybe what we discover is a feeling of, I want to be certain. 
That's interesting. That's interesting. And not only do I want to be certain, I want to be sure, I'm really afraid of being uncertain. That's also interesting. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not suggesting this as technique to use necessarily, but rather as hints or suggestions of how to get interested in whatever it is that we feel is obstructing us from asking a straight question, like what's important, what matters to me, but getting a straight answer. And what's important in my life? What do I want to do with my life? So using our thinking and also using imagination. I think one of the great gifts that uh, Buddhism is currently giving to the West is an opportunity or an encouragement to refresh our attitude towards death. That uh, there's been a serious taboo for a very long time against the subject of death. And there's all sorts of reasons for that, but thankfully Buddhism is helping us get another perspective on that. And Well, not just Buddhism, there's all sorts of, I think... um, Generally in society, I was reading an article the other day, um, in America there's now a movement called Death Over Dinner. What's behind that is a recognition that pretending that we're not going to die or that death is a problem or death is a sign of failure actually is not a very intelligent approach to life. And so in terms of trying to find the priority in our life, what really matters to me? what's important, what I want to give myself to, I have found and I encourage people to contemplate your own death. Like if you think, if you imagine, say, 80 years old, 80, 90 years old, whatever, nice long life and some young person comes to see you, somebody 18, 19, the beginning of their life and and you're getting out there and they want to know what's really important and and so they come and they ask you what really matters now, now I'm suggesting this as a visualisation as, as an image you, know, you sit there and imagine it that you're at the end of your life yeah, and somebody young comes and asks you now not rushing up into the head to try and get the, the right answer to it which is what we normally do but feeling that Feeling, feeling the priority, feeling what really is important in life, not just thinking it. Because so often our thinking is conditioned by what's going on around us. We're, we're, again, we're programmed, conditioned, and easily impressed by the way things appear to be. The stuff, the form of life, you know, the things that are happening around us, what's on the television what's being advertised, what's popular, what people are talking about. Materialistic, materialism. Materialism, or the way things appear to be, very easily intimidates us. And if we haven't developed inner awareness, then we can be fooled by it. Yes, we are educated in our outer awareness, to be aware of what's going on in the world, to be aware of sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches and mental impressions, to be aware of all these things. But are we educated 
with regards to the reality of these things. Like what happens to our hearts? What happens with these sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches and mental impressions? What's the reality of them? Again, we get so easily fooled by the way things appear to be. A very good friend of mine was explaining recently how she has been, she's had her work, her poetry, uh, published. A very reputable publishing house has taken her poems and published them, and it's uh, quite, a, quite a thing to get your work published in that way. And she's, of course, very happy about it. But what she's happy about is that she can share her poems. Well, that's why she's a poet, a good poet, because she likes to share her poetry, and getting it published is great because people, more people will get to read her poems. But she was explaining how what's really surprised her and what's strange is how much her friends and colleagues are just going on about the fact that she got published. As if getting published is the point. Getting published is not the point. Getting published, so what? It's all sorts of (laughs) strange people get all sorts of strange stuff published. But the point is the poems. Uh, But again, we get easily fooled. If we don't have inner awareness, then we get easily fooled by the way things appear to be. Today is New Moon Day, and this morning I sent out a uh, a little quote from the Dhammapada and a little commentary on the the Dhammapada verse, and I was using an example of a piece of paper. And what's more valuable, a great big truckload of old newspapers or a little weeny small piece of paper that happens to be a cheque made out to a million pounds. Which one would you want? Would you want the truckload of old newspaper or would you want this cheque that's actually made out to a million pounds? On the apparent level, that looks more, that looks great. This one little piece of paper, so what? But this is more valuable. How do we see what is through understanding, through inner awareness? How do we develop inner awareness? Well, we've got to be careful not to be fooled by what's going on around us. And so easily the world intimidates us. The Buddha had a lot to say about the senses, not demonizing the senses, sight, sound, smell, taste, touches, and mental impression are all just so. But do we see them as just so? (coughs) Not necessarily. Usually sight, sound, smell, taste, touches, and mental impressions, we then get caught up in liking, disliking, and we don't tend to see the liking, disliking, we just get seduced, persuaded, intimidated by him. Again, I was, um, people visiting the monastery recently, had lots of guests staying, and I was, I was, um, yeah, I was surprised myself at uh, this thing that's going on in society to do with, with now as a whole strata of society to do with management. I've never been aware of this before. Uh, well, I guess I have noticed it, but never really taken it on board, that there's a whole lot of people, they can't actually do anything other than manage. And there's a whole language for managers, a whole set of theories about management, and a lot of them uh, just talk down to and uh, rather dismissive of the people who do things. And this uh, also came to my mind when I was talking to uh, some um, managers of our monasteries, not this one here, but other monasteries and, and our communities, and, and uh, two of them were talking about how we have to just 
turn all the management of the monastery over to professional managers, get lay people to come in and run the monasteries. So we don't want people in the kitchen, we don't want visitors in the kitchen anymore cooking food, we want professional caterers in the kitchen cooking food. And uh, monks and nuns don't really know how to manage, get rid of them and bring in professional managers. And I have to say I was a little bit taken aback by this. And, but then it occurred to me, this is what basically what they're looking at is efficiency on a material level. Efficiency. We don't want people doing deep frying in the kitchen. It's against health and safety. It's true. It is against health and safety. We've got a great big sign up in our kitchen, no deep frying in the kitchen. But still, the cook does deep frying in the kitchen. It's inconvenient. People are inconvenient. But that's life. We don't want to do away with the people. But we will if we're fooled by materialism. We'll just set up targets and goals and, and efficiency in terms of materialism. Materialistic efficiency is not a good way to live. If we do that, we forget about the heart, we forget about the people. So being intimidated by the world is dangerous. As I'm mentioning, several examples recently of this where an anaesthetist in one city sent a patient to another city because they they knew this anaesthetist really knew how to do the job for this person properly. But no, the manager decides which anaesthetist does the job. And so that anaesthetist is not available to do the work. The manager cancelled it. Somebody else in mental health was telling me how the line manager was controlling it. The line manager had absolutely no experience in mental health whatsoever. No experience in mental health. He was a professional manager, so he got brought in because what? Because he was going to save money. Well, if our views, our perceptions are determined by materialism, well, that's the sort of decisions that we make. And we can very easily go way out of balance. And we think, like, for instance, the political systems, the economic systems that our country is run by are talking about perpetual growth and I mean how crazy is that? You know, Ajahn Chitta and I were talking the other day and he was explaining to me how he's talking about if you want to kill plants what you do is you make them grow too fast. Yeah. But this is something that the mind if it's determined, if it's defined by materialism we get impressed by growth and we bring this into our meditation time and time again if people say I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere in my meditation. Uh, just a couple of days ago, somebody was saying, say, well, when I meditate and my mind becomes peaceful, what should I do next? I said, well, what do you want to do something for? Why not, why not be peaceful? <laughs> and that never occurred to him, to be peaceful. It never occurred to him to be peaceful. We're so caught up in materialism. Our views are defined by the outer world. Now, the awareness of the outer world, yes, of course, there's a lot of evidence that's helpful. All sorts of good things have come out of highly defined, highly refined, honed down outer awareness. But the Buddha pointed out, in no uncertain terms, that if we don't have inner awareness, well honed down and developed, then we're going to go out of balance. And so, trying to address this question of what really matters to me, me personally, when I'm dying, what do I want to think about? I'd like to think, oh, well, that was useful. I, I, I was helpful there. I made good use of this opportunity. What I don't want to think about is, oh, I blew that one. Yeah. I hope the next one's better. You know, it may not be better. Goodness knows what you're going to do. A sheepdog or something. You know, a sheepdog running around on Harnham Hill next time. That wouldn't be much. 
here we are, we've got this human birth. It's, um, I'm a very traditional Buddhist. I happen to think that the, what the Buddha said is true, that being born as a human being is a really precious, rare opportunity. We have this opportunity to not just develop outer awareness, but also inner awareness. And on this point, the Buddha was very specific, and he, one of the things he highlighted and asked us to attend to was what he referred to the the spiritual faculties, not just the physical faculties of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touching, but also the inner spiritual faculties of sadha, virya, sati, samadhi, panya and vali, or, or faith, energy, mindfulness, recollectedness, discernment. And so if we, I would suggest that if we want to protect ourselves, equip ourselves with the skills to be able to ask a straight question and get a straight answer, then this is what we need to be attending to. Yes, the outer awareness is great, but we do really need to put time aside to hone down these inner faculties. If we don't, well, just like the outer faculties, if we don't exercise them, or like the limbs, the physical limbs, if you don't use your limbs, they atrophy sets in. Hmm. So our spiritual faculties can atrophy, actually, like the capacity for having faith, trusting. Again, the education system we get is you've got to know, you've got to be sure. Now, that's useful. That's a useful tool in certain circumstances. It's useful. It's like a pair of pliers. It's useful to have a pair of pliers. you 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 want to cut wire. But if you want to actually screw a screw in, a pair of pliers is useless. Have you ever tried putting a screw in with a pair of pliers? (laughs) It really doesn't work. It absolutely doesn't work. It's completely useless. And a lot of life's issues, like what should I do in my practice or what's the priority in my life, to try and approach it with the assumption that we know what we're doing when we don't know what we're doing, that's using the wrong tool. The right tool is faith. It's trust. There is a real reality. To trust, there is a real reality. There is Dhamma. We've read about it. We've heard about it. There are realized beings around who have discovered it, have seen it, have known it for themselves. And the wise thing to do is to actually trust that they know what they're talking about. Now, trust is a profound tool as an inner faculty. But how well developed is it for us? Uh, You want to know how well developed it is? Well, it manifests as... Humility and modesty. Mm. When we when we know how to trust, have faith, then we're not always defaulting to having to be the know-it-all. There's the ability to say, well, actually, the truth is, I don't know what I should do in my practice. And you don't feel guilty about it. Can we say, like, when you're confronted with some difficulty in practice or in the relationship realm. What should I do in this situation? Do we have the humility to actually come back and say, I don't know what to do? Because if we do have that, what does that feel like? What What does that feel like to be honest about the fact that we don't know and not freak out over it? Yeah. That's the opposite expression, being rigid and holding on to the idea, I know what I'm doing, when in fact we don't. And then the other extreme is completely freaking out and indulging in chaos. 
the middle way between these, what the Buddha was encouraging, was a mindful, honest receptivity of the reality, which is right now, this is the situation, and I don't know what to do. That's actually a very creative situation to be in. And all we're asked to do is to admit the truth. But it is a faculty that we, if we don't exercise, we don't cultivate it, we can miss it. We can just think that we have to know all the time, we have to understand. So faith, trust, exercising it, and then energy as a faculty. Now, spiritual energy is very different from physical energy. Most of us in the room here are all beginning to get on in years. Not many spring chickens around. And uh, so (laughs) the older ones are laughing, the younger ones don't know what we're talking about. But physical energy, actually, you know, it's not great when you get older. It's not great. It's not fun. Um, When you're getting older, you wake up in the morning, you've got to hold on to something as you get out of bed. Your knees hurt, your ankles hurt. I think it's not going to get any better. That's physical energy. But spiritual energy is something else. And it's something the Buddha encourages us to really work on, to cultivate, to be mindful, to apply ourselves. Do we know what spiritual energy is? How do we generate spiritual energy? One of the ways to generate spiritual energy is to, to consider, to question, to look at what do we, what, what do we get interested in? What are, we, what, are, what are we really interested in? Again, our materialistic thinking, if our view of the world, of our perceptions of life are defined by materialism, we just get interested in comfort. And I tell you, as you get older, that's pointless. After a while, you just can't get comfortable. You have to accept this is how it's going to be from now on. Uncomfortable. That's the body that wants to be comfortable. Or you could say that when the heart wants to be comfortable, that's a different orientation. That is worth following. How do we make the heart comfortable? What, what makes the heart at ease? What brings the heart to ease? That's a good question. Now, if we can get interested in that, that generates energy. Yeah? Just the same as like interest in something outwardly, like if you find you've got exorbitant gas bills, you know, it's costing you a fortune to pay the gas. Well, what can I do to bring my bills down? You know, put in insulation or get the kids to close the windows or something rather. You get interested, we'll find a way of doing it. Mm-hmm. Or if you, you, you're looking up on a friend that you just remembered, somebody you're really keen to see, you really want to see this person again, and you get interested. Now, doesn't it? That interest generates energy, doesn't it? Interest. Well, likewise, if we're skillful, if we reflect, if we're smart, If we heed the words of the wise ones, what we'll do is we'll ask our hearts this question. What am I really interested in? What am I most interested in? What do I want to do before I die? The spiritual bucket list. Not the material bucket list, you know, going to Nepal or... But the spiritual bucket list. What do I want to do before I die? And again, not going up into our heads and thinking an answer determined by what somebody else says or what some book says, but feeling, going into silence, 
going into not knowing, going into the body, and just feeling what, what comes back when we ask that question and letting interest emerge. Interest is one of the ways of generating energy. Of course, we all know about willfulness, but that's highly overrated. And hopefully by this stage of life we realise that being willful is a very exhausting way of generating energy. So faith, energy, mindfulness, the third of the five spiritual faculties, mindfulness. There's a lot of talk about mindfulness these days and I think it's good to look at it and be careful with our understanding of it. Don't just assume because we've heard lots of talks about it that we understand it. Again, try and feel for what, 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 do we, what, do we, what do we sense is meant by this word. You read what the Buddha said, what the Buddha was talking about, listen to what the teachers are talking about, and then ask yourself, what's your own word for it? For mindfulness. The word mindfulness these days, mind is you know, something to do with the head. It's up in the head. This is where the mind is. But is that really what the Buddha was talking about? The four foundations of mindfulness? Mindfulness in the four postures, sitting, standing, walking, lying down. Personally, I like the word carefulness. Carefulness. Much more embodied. Careful, being careful. You know, like if you're carrying a cup of tea into a room mindfully, does that mean you're up in your head? Not necessarily. If you're carrying a cup of tea into a room carefully, you're not going to spill it. Yeah, being careful. And if we're holding our, our question, what should I be doing with my life? What's important if we're holding it carefully? What does that mean? Well, for me, that actually means a lot more than if I say I'm holding it mindfully. If I personally, the way I've heard the word used, I kind of feel like, oh, mindfulness is a technique I'm supposed to do or get right or it's popular these days. Personally, I don't find the word very attractive. If you like the word, that's fine. But what's important is that we really question what's what's the Buddha was holding up. The Buddha held up mindfulness. The Buddha was unique in the world, all the world's religions. There's nobody else talked about mindfulness. And yet the Buddha said, mindfulness, ekiyana mago, Mindfulness is the one way. It's necessary. It's essential. Yeah. We've got, there's got to be mindfulness for anything to work. So he made a big thing out of mindfulness. A lot of the other four faculties, are the spiritual faculties of, of faith, of energy, of recollectiveness, of discernment, without mindfulness, we very easily go out of balance. So agility. Agility of mind is important. You know, like one of the things, if we... If we really cultivate mindfulness, what the Buddha was talking about, it's quite possible to hold in heart, to hold in mind, apparently conflicting perceptions. If we have the agility of mindfulness, embodied mindfulness, expanded mindfulness, at one level of mind, you can be, I really want to practice the Dhamma. I really want to get sincere about my meditation. I really do. I'm really enthusiastic about it. I absolutely do. I know I do. And on another level, I just want to go to sleep. I'm fed up with this Buddhism. Hocus pocus. Carry on. Always this, always that. All these lists of things. And God, I'm tired of the dumb mind. It bores me to tears. At the same time. Now, an unaware, unmindful mind is going to make a problem out of that. It's the same with any dilemma. 
this relationship, I really value it. It's terribly important to me, this relationship. And I'm fed up with this guy. I just had enough of him. Yeah. If we're mindful, there's the, the capacity to hold both of those at the same time. And that also happens to be an ideal predicament to be in for deepening and for insight. Now, if we haven't trained mindfulness, we're going to take one or the other. So the agility of mind is really worth developing. A world of materialistic mind, it's always picking and choosing, taking sides, because it can't stand being uncertain. It wants some solid ground to stand on. If we're spiritually aware, inwardly aware, this feels really uncertain, really uncertain. And uncertainty feels like this. Big, wide, open heart, big, wide, open mind, and it feels like this. Uncertainty is a feeling. Not knowing is a feeling, it's a perception in a larger reality. But if we don't develop these inner faculties, such perception is likely to be impossible. Recollectedness or what uh, in Pali is samadhi. Now, samadhi often, as probably most of you realize, is translated as concentration. But if we do translate it as concentration, it, uh, it can tend to produce in the mind this idea of exclusive, contracted, small-mindedness, which many of you might have experienced as I have, is, um, is not helpful. You know, we, we easily default to that. You know, we're, we're again, in our education, we're, we're encouraged to that. Focus, concentrate, exclude, mm-hmm. contract. Me and my world that I live in. Whereas the what's perhaps more helpful is the suggestion to the mind that we're not dissipating our attention. So rather than contracting and collapsing into some exclusive state of mind, to find a way of suggesting to the mind that we gather our heart and mind together. That's why I personally prefer the word recollectedness, to gather together, to recollect our attention and if we're interested in cultivating this, you know, again, you can you know, use willfulness and determination and focus, but also we can use interest you know, to examine this condition that we have now of distracted, dissipated mind. Yeah. Like what is it that makes us so dissipated? One of the things that makes the mind so dissipated all over the place is is our addiction to discontentment. Again, if you feel discontented, it's because you're supposed to be feeling discontented. Don't feel guilty about feeling discontented. You should feel discontented. All of our conditioning, all of television, all of the newspapers, most of the society is about making us discontented. The philosophy of our world is about being discontented so you can want more and keep the current economic system going and again the scientific model is about get interested in change always wanting to change things but there's not a lot of education on contentment on respect for tradition respect 
and loyalty. You know, these things are almost like dirty words in our society. But is the result of our addiction to change and development and growth bringing us to contentment? If we don't have contentment, then the mind is not going to become calm and quiet and still. And so instead of practicing samadhi so as to become contented, we could try actually being contented. In fact, we're just having some, we're having some aprons printed for our kitchen with a Dhamma quote on it that says, contentment is not the goal, contentment is the way. Because you know what it can be like in the kitchen. There can be a reasonable amount of discontentment, you know, trying to get the meal ready on time, trying to get people to cooperate, trying to get the oven to work, whatever. And we can, we can somehow very easily blame the conditions for our discontentment. But if you stop and look at it, is discontentment an obligation? Or is it a choice? If we, what is discontentment? What actually is discontentment? Discontentment, surely, is being caught up in desire for things to be otherwise. Now, is that an obligation? Do we have to do that? Here we are, I mean, we all know it, you know, this is seriously affluent society, hugely fortunate circumstance with more food, clothing and shelter and medicine than we know what to do with, and yet what do we do? I want more. <laughs> all the time. I, mean, yeah, I do it. <laughs> we all do it. I want more. Yeah. This, this is not enough. This is not enough. So, again, the faculty of recollectedness, of samadhi, of stillness, of contentment, of ease, is not going to necessarily come because we're always wanting to make our mind be different from how it is. So I'd suggest try being contented with what we've got. The next time the mind starts going into complaining and saying, I want something different, I don't like my house the way it is, I don't like my relationship the way it is, I don't like my body the way it is, I don't like... And when we talk like this, then people think, oh, you know, you're abdicating, you're being lazy, you're not, not embracing the challenges. Well, to choose to embrace the challenge when that's what's called for, of course, can be skillful. But isn't it the case that we often get caught up in compulsively, always, feeling like we've got to change? And so like that uh, chap I was mentioning a minute ago when he was meditating and his mind became all peaceful and calm and he started worrying about what he's supposed to do next. And so then the fifth faculty, discernment, or in Pali the word is panya, usually translated as wisdom. And this is the highest of the faculties of the, the Buddha, held up as the highest of the spiritual faculties and, and something that, yes, is really worth committing ourselves to. But we don't want to just, and the Buddha didn't ask us to just believe in wisdom. Thankfully, what the Buddha offered us was a path of cultivation. And so to take this on board, to reflect and say, well, you know, what, do, what, do I, what do I feel about this, this faculty of wisdom? How honed down is my ability to discern? Or do I easily just believe things? 
when the experts come along, economic experts, political experts, spiritual experts, it's very easy to be intimidated by spiritual experts, people who sound terribly confident about the path of practice. And we thought we're doing okay, and then we hear another teacher who comes along and says, no, no, you're doing it wrong, you're supposed to be doing it that way. You know, do we get swayed? Do we easily get persuaded? Well, if, if that's the case, well then, maybe we need to take a look at this faculty of discernment, to know for ourselves, to be able to, to, be able to ask our own important question. Again, going back to that image that I was suggesting at the beginning or early on about when I'm on my deathbed and somebody comes to me, somebody 18 years old, you know, some smart person at the beginning of their life, really interested and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and really keen to not waste their life on the houses. Look, you're at the end of your life, what really matters? Please tell me. You know, where does that take us within ourselves? What do we feel about that? Where is that place within us? Where is that place? Where do we go to when we're asked that question? And how do we feel in that place? Can we sit comfortably in that place that we go to when we ask that question? What do I want to do with my life? Not being in a hurry to go out to our heads and finding an answer. That's, that's the, again, that's the materialistic solution. Wanting to be certain. The mindfulness, the sensitivity, the faith, the energy, the tranquility, the ability to abide in not knowing, but really feeling the question. Mm. The materialistic world is, is always, including the spiritually materialistic world, always trying to give us solutions to our questions. It's one of the the big crimes that takes place in the spiritual world when you come to a teacher with your question and the teacher just answers it for you. And you become attached to the teacher. You know, the kindest thing the teacher can do when you come with a question is help you find the ability to open your heart and mind a little bit wider so you can accommodate your question. You know, we all have our own real questions about what really matters in life. And so rather than defaulting to spiritual techniques, I would encourage really finding a way of listening to that question, discerning that question. Let that question, even if it's quite threatening, you know, like if you've been spending most of your life convincing yourself and other people that you know what you're doing, to suddenly discover that you don't know what you're doing can be quite intimidating. It often happens to men around about the age of 40. You think, oh my God, I've got, I haven't got a clue what I'm doing. Now, if we've prepared ourselves by that point, you say, oh, right, open your heart a little bit wider. Yeah. Use the frustration, use the disappointment to take our inquiry deeper. And so the spirit of inquiry <clears throat> is not something we can necessarily learn by picking up some technique, but rather by daring to feel what it feels like to be uncertain. And the materialistic world, the materialistic thinking is the opposite direction. It wants to know, it wants to be sure. So thank you very much for your attention.